It's time for Easton Podcast number 51. Hi, I'm George Sekmanchev here with Steve the Big Cat Anderson. Take two. Yeah, we've been going about three, four minutes. It's not as bad as when we had Sergio in and we went for like 20 minutes and then realized we weren't recording. Yeah, but then I looked at the recorder about three minutes into the introduction of the show. We had some gold. That's yeah, it can never be, be recreated. Forever. He just yeah. can't. Not but, even going to try. But here it is. It's show number 51. And, uh, you know, our complicated recording system, what can I say? Yeah, we have to push that one button that's already lit up for us so that we know we're supposed to push that one button. Not just lit up, it's flashing. Yeah. You'd think I would have seen it. It's all good. Hi, everybody. Steve's back from Shanghai, and uh, we've got a World Cup coming up here in about a week and a half here in Salt Lake City. Got one and in between. between, you've got to go to Turkey. <laughs> let's, let's before we, before we talk about packing for Turkey, let's talk about uh, what happened in Shanghai. Pretty good results for the American team in general with a bronze medal for the compound men, Man. silver medal for the recurve women. Yeah. Not bad. Not bad at all. However, Russia did better for American women. They uh, took the gold medal in the final. What happened to Korea? What happened to the Korean women? Um, I don't know. I was shooting when they were shooting. So well, it was, a, it was a bit of a shocker there. Yeah. So I didn't even see who they lost to. It was a bit of a shocker there. <laughs> we'll just leave it at that. But um, overall, a very uh, successful event. Um, turnout for that one was a little down from the previous year, but that's to be expected because the previous year was, of course, an Olympic year. Right. Yep. And in fact, um, looking, at, I was just looking at the numbers for the turnout that we're going to have in Salt Lake City, considerably more than Turkey will have next week. Yeah, which um, I think makes sense in a way. A lot of the countries want to come to the States. It's uh, a popular destination for many reasons, but you get a lot of the Latin American countries that Turkey's too expensive to make it all the way over there. It's a hard place to get to. Yeah, Eastern Europe, on the other hand, they love going to Turkey yeah. because it's not too hard to get there. Yeah, basically everybody in Europe. But then there are some countries who are not allowing their athletes to go to Europe, or Turkey, excuse me. Yeah, Netherlands so, comes to mind. Right. So yeah. um, they'll all be here in the States, but yeah, we got to get through one in Turkey first and it will be interesting. No doubt. And, you know, the Turks always put on a wonderful event. But, uh, you know, Shanghai being in the bag and online on NBC Sports in the United States. Did you see that? I, you, you didn't see it. You were over there. But it was on NBC Sports here in the U.S. Um, it's on YouTube elsewhere and Eurosport in Europe. And uh, WA has cut a deal and we'll have the uh, Salt Lake World Cup on NBC. Greg Easton broke that news to us uh, in the podcast uh, last so, some good stuff there. Uh, another medal to hang on the wall for you and your teammates who were Braden Galantine and... Real Wild. Yeah, so pretty solid teamwork there. Yeah, it wasn't our best effort, but we there's some struggles. It's a tough venue to shoot in. The, the uh, qualification field is shot in the arena, and it was windy all week, and you just don't know which direction it's moving through the through the uh, stadium because it's always going a different direction. So mm -hmm. we shot pretty well at times, but then there was there was times where we did all we could and it just didn't work out for us, and we ended up losing in the semis. And uh, then we got to the finals venue, and I, I, I got to say that finals venue has never been friendly to me. I've never shot well there. Because there's so, a lot of water and a lot of wind, and it's real hard to read. Yeah, again, it's another place where – it's hard to know what's really happening out there. You know, I went and broke seven of eight shots really well and did not hit seven of eight tens. So I don't know. I'll have to figure that out another time, maybe next year. But, you know, Chef Vandenberg said the same thing to me. He said he couldn't figure out what was going on there. So 
Yeah. Some people did. Stefan Hansen did. Sarah Lopez did. They yeah. all shot fine. But well, you're in pretty good company with the confusion, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> no. It's a tough place. It is. Yeah. But uh, it seems like a well-run event. Always. One of the uh, one of the things that's uh, good about the event, our, our good friend Hayakawa Ren uh, from Japan is back in action after a couple of years off with a shoulder injury, and she took a uh, second-place medal at the event. So uh, congratulations to our friend Ren. And um, there was a bit of controversy, too. And uh, we might as well just jump into the questions that we've received. Uh, in the U.S. ladies' team, Malcolm Reese mentions that Mackenzie Brown got yellow carded a couple of times after Lenola Shepard dropped her first arrow. What went on there? Does a dropped arrow have to be returned to behind the waiting line? Well, rather than speculate on this, um, I did have a chat with the Secretary General of World Archery, Mr. Tom Dillon, who very kindly responded to our question. Um, and uh, Tom said that they are in the process of discussing what happened with the judges' committee. It's not the intention of the rule for a yellow card to be deployed um, in that situation. But the rule isn't specific as to what it means when an arrow is, quote, out of the quiver, so it's considered a borderline case. Um, you know, you could also say that the athlete and coach probably should have said, hey, get that arrow off the line, because apparently there's been training for team rounds in the past, and there is um, no leaving arrows on the ground in team rounds is the guideline. So that's, uh, you know, it's not official, but that's a uh, overview of what happened there. It seems that, there, you know, there there may have been a judging error or at least an opportunity for improvement. Yeah, and it was, it was uh, unfortunate it happened. Yeah. You know, the, with the recurvers, they have, they're so fast to shoot that I'm not sure it, Certainly, it had an effect on them because they thought, "Oh, we don't have time. We don't have time." But they still had plenty of time. They did have plenty of time. Yeah. But I think you, if you look at the match and you see what happened, you see they got a little exercised about it, understandably so, because they're trying to communicate telepathically with the judge, who's only holding a yellow card. They don't right. know why. The judge can't say. Well, he what's can happening. actually. Eh, I was told otherwise, but really, well, I, I don't see a rule anywhere that says the judge can't give guidance. Right. So, in my opinion. The judge contributed to this. The shooters contributed to this. And it's a nightmare for the archers, as Malcolm points out, when you don't know what the issue is. And that's that's unfortunate. But I don't think it actually affected the match per se. They're pretty No, it was – I mean – Max Arrow was pretty much where they've been, you know, for that, yeah, for that end. The, so. uh, and, and even if they had had bad arrows there, the set system's still in play. You know, say the match played out how it was going to. As we know that there's uh, there's more than one legendary Dave Cousins. There's the British Dave Cousins. And uh, the British Dave Cousins is asking us, uh, after thanking us for answering his previous question a few podcasts ago, he's changed his veins to bonding air veins and has found that every now and then he can feel a vein on his chin when at full draw but can't feel it for most shots. What is David doing to cause this? Well, well either anchoring in the wrong place or he's got a vein that's fletched higher up the shaft than others. Yeah, it's got to be one of those too, David. Um, get a friend with a video camera, which everybody has on their cell phone these days, <clears throat> to perhaps give you uh, a little bit of a video uh, review of what might be going on there. Uh, David Keogh is asking, why did Sarah Lopez switch back to her podium? Does she like the geometry better? Does she like? Did she have tuning issues with the um, the Prevail? Uh I've heard Sarah says that she scores a little higher with the podium, which makes sense. She's got a lot more experience with it. 
Yeah, she hasn't really taken the time to get her prevail set up right, which I am now working with her on. So she straight up didn't have – she was about two spines weak on arrows with that bow. So I think once she gets that sorted out, her prevail will be just fine. I don't think it's a bow issue, but rather a improper setup. Uh, David wants to know, do we use hooter shooters for both recurve and compound? Um, and he points out that it's hard to mimic the finger release, and it's easy to use a release aid with a compound when testing arrows. How do you remove the human element? Or do you design with the human element to ensure it fits your archers? We absolutely design with the human element in mind. That's why X10s are tapered in the back. And it says here, everyone seems to have their name of arrow rests these days. Where is the G-Tech or Big Cat arrow rest? Sounds like a commercial opportunity to me. I'm fine with what I have. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I like my Shibuya <laughs> arrow rest. Thank you very much. Jade Alderman says that she's a true fan of the show, even if Steve thinks her father and she are crazy for listening. Oh, yeah. I met Sounds them. like you ran into her yep. somewhere. Uh, just wanted to give you a, a big thanks to Big Cat for taking the time after practice on Friday at Gator Cup to not only give me insight in my arrow spine, but to also not judge me since I'm a staff shooter for another company. <laughs> well, there you go. It's awesome to get to talk to you and Linda. Thank you. I'm a young recurve archer, and meeting the idols in our sport is awesome. So, uh, Thank you for your comments there, Jade. Tangway um, would like to know the relationship of grip angle and stabilization for compound and recurve. It's complicated, um, but for the most part, you're generally going to see lower grips for compounds. You are generally going to see higher grips for recurve. You are generally going to see much lower holding weight for compounds and vice versa. And as a result, the two are not similar, and also execution is not the same. You're looking for a particular – Steve, tell me what you're looking for with, with stabilization on your compound. Uh, so, well, we, we've talked about this before. We, we talked have. about how you know V-bar length and V-bar angle or, or sidebar, if you're just using a single, can have an effect on how it pitches the bow in correlation to your front bar length and how much weight you have on there. So there's a lot of things that can change – you know, the grip pressure you get, and now with adjustable grip angles, like, you know, say the Hoyt bows come with, you can really fine-tune that feel to what you're looking for. And there's no right or wrong way to do it, just the way that works for you. So, um, there, you know, that's the best I can do to explain the relationship because we all like a different relationship, I suppose. But all of those things play a factor in it. So, for me personally, um you know, I, I look for – I've shot the same Hoyt grip angle for the last, I don't know, seven years or so. So I haven't really changed that because I'm very accustomed to it. And um, when I'm setting up for stabilization, it's all set around that particular grip angle. If I were to change my grip angle, I'm sure that I'd have to change some element of the stabilization piece as well. But, I mean, really – I'm setting up for a good, slow, predictable movement. I, I'm not going to have one that parks in the middle and sits there. I, and if I do, it'll probably just scare me and I won't be able to fire the bow. So, as always, slow, predictable movement is what I'm looking for. Yep. And for recurve, you also have to consider, and I know this is also true for some compounds and some compound setups, but you definitely have to figure in tiller for recurve, which is not just a function of the positive tiller that most people dial into the limbs, but also a function of finger pressure. So there's more variables with the recurve. But the bottom line is, with the recurve, if you're talking about float in the case of Steve Anderson just now, 
uh, you're floating even more with a recurve, generally speaking, unless you are one of a few specific shooters that likes to set it up to feel like a compound. Brady Ellison comes to mind. Butch Johnson comes to mind. Um, those guys are aiming more than normal, certainly aiming more than your typical Korean shooter, um, which is not to say one's wrong or right, but one kind of shooter, a lot of Korean shooters, if you look at their setups, they're shooting lighter stabilizers. They're shooting canonical tiller plus three millimeters, something like that. They're shooting normal finger pressure distribution. Um, and then you're looking at some other shooters who are using more weight, and the ones with more weight are trying to make the bow a little more steady. I'll bet it's still not as steady as some compounds, but it's still floating, of course. So, honestly, it's it, it really comes down to personal preference, um, but grip angle is only one of several variables. I, I don't know if that sheds any light on your question, but hopefully it'll give you some more to, to think about. Dylan Drew says, Big Cat, I noticed you're shooting X-10s rather than Pro Tours, as is Braden Galantine. And uh, as of a couple of years ago, Rio Wild was also shooting X-10s. All of you guys are cutting a bunch of, uh, you're, you're essentially removing the rear taper on mm -hmm. these arrows. Correct. He wants to know what your reasoning is for that. Uh, X-10 325 with the rear taper cutoff responds stiffer than a Pro Tour 340. And, and if we made a Pro Tour 300, I'd probably shoot that. You might throw in how long your draw length is. Yeah, so at 32 and a half inch draw length, I just need as stiff as I can get. Yeah. Um, Braden is shooting X-10s. Well, he goes in between a Pro Tour 380 and an X-10 350. He's shooting the X-10 350 because we set those up for him before we ever made the Pro Tour 340. So next time he needs arrows, he'll probably do the Pro Tour 340. Well, there you go. So um, that is good enough reasoning. I also yeah. noticed your string is colored black where it splits for your peep sight. Is that to reduce some brightness while aiming? Yeah, basically. Just to reduce some yeah. brightness and then the peep moves, I can see it. Do you do the same thing indoors? Yep. Okay. Congratulations on all your recent success. Uh, thank Many you, Dylan. Thanks. Uh, Alan Gunter. I've noticed a few Hoyt shooters going back to the podium. I, I don't know about a few. I've seen a couple. I've One. seen none. Well, yeah, Sarah. She never left. She never left. So <laughs> anyway. She never took time to set up the other one. But Alan seems to have noticed a few shooters going back to the podium, or he thinks he has. Says he's got a young shooter that he coaches that's done the same thing because he can't get comfortable with the prevail. Any insight on what you've done or what you've noticed and changes you made to the prevail when setting it up to get more comfortable might be helpful. I'll just kind of put this how it really is. So when everybody finishes with bow model X, you know, 2016 model, it's the end of outdoor season. They've got that bow freaking dialed in, right? It's as good as they've ever had it. And if they don't have it shooting well, then really I don't know what they were doing all summer during outdoor season. They – get to indoor season, they, you know, bow model 2017 comes out, they switch bows, they shoot indoor with it. Indoor's freaking easy to set up for, you side in for 20 yards, it's done. They go back outside, and now if it's not shooting immediately as good as their bow they've spent all summer or two years shooting outdoors with, they panic. Rather than take the time to figure out something about the new one to make it work or to replicate it, draw length, holding weight, that sort of thing to what they were using in previous years or to tune their arrows to the bow. So that's generally what I see. Um, you know, I've gone through, I, I've shot the last five generations of Hoyt bows and never have I felt like I needed to go back to a previous version. And you can ask basically any shooter from, you know, Matthews, Elite, PSE, whatever. I mean, it's, uh, there, there's a period of familiarization 
and a period of, you know, figuring out the tech side of a bow. And that's really about it. But if you're judging something based off the first month of shooting it outdoors, you know, then, and, and you're comparing it to something you've had two years behind, then it's always going to be a bit of a challenge. So, um, that being said, there isn't a tournament I've shot at this year where I haven't set a high score with my prevail. Oh, there you go. That Unless speaks. you count Redding in the super wind. And I didn't shoot my high score, but I did win. Well, winning <laughs> winning trumps high scores. Daniel Foley wants to know, uh, by the way, speaking of Redding, uh, which do you prefer for field or Redding set up a sight tape or a separate list of sight marks? Oh, um, I mean, if you can do both, do both. It's good to have that tape as a reference, and you can also, um, you know, use the tape if you run into issues with your sight and you have to put something back on. But I like using sight marks. I feel like they're, you know, more exacting. And if I if I run into issues with a sight tape being incorrect, I can better gauge what's happening based off the sight marks. And you know, I see people who will take a sight tape and go, "Oh, I've I've lost a yard," so they. At 70 yards, they, they adjust it one yard. They move their needle one yard. Well, at 70 yards, you moved it one, but at 20 yards, you moved it three. Exactly. So that doesn't work for me. So I use the marks card, and I figure out the math. You know, if I go, I'm I'm a half yard off, well, I can figure that 20 to 21 yards is eight clicks, so I need to move four here versus, you know, 10 down the road for a half yard. So I think it's better to use the marks card. I mean, I, I've gone through – Really, I can only think of one time I actually put a tape on my bow and shot it exclusively. And even then, when I came to a big tournament, I, I went with the Marks card. For me, for Recurve Field, I prefer to just start out with a tape, uh, if I can get one generated, simply as a shortcut to getting the rest of my score, or the rest of my marks. And I will get a mark for each distance. I'll just, five yard increments, mm-hmm. uh, five meter increments, actually. And for me, that's you know that's the the confidence builder because the process of getting those marks it's a lot different for yeah, a recurve, yeah, much more difficult. And uh, Daniel points out, best of luck in Mexico, Steve. We neglected to mention, of course, that Steve, you just won a spot on the U.S. archery team for the World Championship. Yep, congratulations. Thank you. That's yeah, awesome. Harder team to make. So. It is just as hard to make a World Championship team as it is to do just about anything else in our sport in this country in men's compound. Yeah, so, in the in the U.S., yeah. I would say our team, making the men's U.S. compound team is second only to making, second or third, I guess you'd say, to making a Korean recurve team. Yes, I would agree. And, you know, just as a perhaps another exclamation point on that subject, this is the first time Rio Wild has not made a world team in 10 years. That's a pretty impressive Really uh, impressive number. run. Yeah. He's the alternate for the U.S. team. So it'll be Braden Galantine and yourself. And Chris Schaff. And Chris Schaff. So yeah. that'll be a solid team, and you guys all get along, so that'll be a, a fun team to be around, I'm, I'm no doubt. Uh, Riku Van Tonder says, I know Steve does not really practice. So I would like to know before shooting, what warm-up routine does he go through to help reduce muscle recovery? Do you have some guidelines? Nice work on the Gator Cup. And uh, Riku is in New Zealand. Yeah, now that I'm, I mean, I'm. You know, it would be awesome. You know that Maori war dance thing that they've done in New Zealand for many years to get ready for rugby? Rugby, yeah. Yeah, that would be cool. 
<laughs> Maybe. I mean, you see, like, the high school football teams, American No, no, just you out it. there doing it. Just me? No. Just you. By yourself. No. no? I, that's, I would be sweaty by the end of that. All right, enough said. That's not, so. That's hard work. But, yeah, now that I'm almost 40. Yeah, I what mean, are you doing now that you're three quarters of the way to 40? Yeah, well. Not quite. Yeah, 29. I know, but. The way to 40, but. Um, I, I do find myself having to warm up a little bit, which sucks, but whatever, you know? So I don't know. I just throw some arm circles out there, wiggle around a little bit. Um, uh, you know, when I ran track and field in college, I didn't like to stretch. I didn't, I honestly believe that for a sprinter stretching too much was harmful. You know, you lose some of that, uh, wound up tension. And I, I suppose archery is more of a endurance game than an explosion game so i've started you know doing some arm circles waving around a little bit stretching a tad and uh occasionally i'll even pull the bow back once and hold it a little bit and then then let down wow it's almost as bad as shooting yeah one of these days i will uh i will get a rubber band so i don't have to pull the bow all the way back oh yeah i mean (laughs) you've only got so many shots you you might as well you know not waste yeah practicing or getting warmed up all right well yeah, there you go. I hope that uh, gives you some guidelines, and for the rest of you, you know, um, actually go through a warm-up routine. Uh, you know, Steve is a fictional character and should not be imitated at home. Kafir Bihar, did you see that? Uh, did you see that post I put up on Twitter of you with uh, in the Shiboya Pro Shop? Yes. Yeah, that got a lot of uh, that got a lot of attention. Yeah, yeah. Go- Gojira, Gojira comes to Tokyo again. Yeah, I don't know why people got to, you know attack my sheer height but in japan come on you know how'd it go how come it's okay to dog on tall people but if i make fun of someone who's short i'm a bad person because people want to be like you yeah more people wish until they have to go shopping and sitting in their pants yeah 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 if i were to make fun of a short person i'd be a bad guy but people make fun of you and it's okay yeah exactly yeah we won't go into politics, but you know we do see some of the same phenomenon, so we'll just leave it there. Um, yeah, but okay, let's let's just move on. How'd it go in Tokyo, though? Seriously, how was the ramen? Was Solid, I right? Yeah, it was great. Told you. Yeah. All right, Kafir Bihar. I recently bought three forty Pro Tours, and the diameter of the pin knock bushings is smaller than the back of the shaft. Is that normal? Uh, actually, Mr. Bihar, I think you probably bought yourself some regular X ten bushings, maybe. Yeah. Uh, no, he's actually right. Is, yeah. it a little, is it running a little bit? Yeah, just because of the uh, that extra material back On there. On that particular model. Up. Yeah, gotcha. So. Okay. So there you go. It's it might normal. Be, might be noted in the future we might have to build maybe a little a third, bigger pin. Yeah, maybe so. Possibly. You know, as, as we continue. In the meantime, it should be perfectly accurate. I wouldn't worry about it. Yeah, in terms of a uh, shooting perspective, it's fine. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Paul Isinger. I'd like to build a set of SuperDrive 23s for 3D. He pulls 62 pounds. On a carbon defiant with a 29 inch draw, uh, he thinks a 375 will probably work. An ideal vein knock combo to go on that arrow. Yeah, 375 would work. Um, with a lighter point, maybe? Yeah, it depends on cut length, probably. You know, if you're cutting them 28 inches, getting them inside the shelf a little bit, that'd probably be the best way to do it. And. Then he, you know, he says something about the the max stealth vein. That's a really good one. On yeah, he says that he arrows. sees some guys run a max stealth vein or something similar, and others have little shield style veins. But yeah. I don't have a chance to try them all out myself. So I would he's avoid just looking the, for some guidance. I would avoid the small vein, something either like a two inch blazer, you know, or something similar. Yeah, 
or a three inch what's max stealth. What's the max distance these guys are shooting in three D? Uh generally about fifty yards max. So even so. more so, right? I mean you're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah. get the steering. Right. Get the steering. Yeah, you want to get that arrow under control ASAP. Okay. So. All right. Hopefully that helps you, Paul. Uh, Douglas Jardine says he's got one for me. Does Do I recommend recurve shooters use a platform on their tab? If so, should their thumb be over or under the platform? And what is the most common among international archers? So do I recommend recurve shooters use a platform on the tab? Before I could make a recommendation for an individual, I'd have to look at the length of their thumb, where their hand is, what kind of jaw shape they've got. Um, a number of variables need to be ev- evaluated. You know, if you can get a good bone-on-bone anchor, I would argue maybe that's better. But for most people, having a platform properly located on the tab and properly shaped, if they have a good release, is probably going to be helpful. And if so, your thumb should be under the platform, in my opinion. And what's the most common among international archers? What I just described. Platforms high up, and they get that sucker under the jawline. There's a little point under the jaw, and they try to get it there. And uh, you just have to be careful about making sure when you do use a platform that you have consistent pressure vertically. Um, and it, you know, this is the kind of stuff where a coach comes in really handy. So hopefully that's helpful. Yeah. If I shot recurve, I would only put my thumb behind my neck. Until you make yourself pass out from pressing on your carotid <laughs> artery. <laughs> I, I would only do that because of Victor Rubon. Well, he's the man. You know, yeah. Victor... And uh, don't forget uh, our friend Michele Frangilli also shooting that style. Really? And just about every other U- every Ukrainian shooter. Yeah, all the Ukrainians do it. Yeah. And a lot of the Russians used to do it. Hmm. And, um, yeah, it's – I actually shot that way for a while. Um, it works just fine. Yeah. But it's very static in the back half, so you got to be careful not to get right. lazy. Yeah. Uh, the Lights Out crew has got a question for us. Do you know these guys? Is this somebody we know? I don't know. Okay. Maybe. Well, they've got a Facebook handle that says Lights Out Crew. Sounds like a hunting group, doesn't it? All right. Anyway, I currently use Archer's Advantage, and compared to the Easton Arrow Spine Chart, Archer's Advantage typically suggests two or more spine sizes stiffer. Any thoughts? I wonder what chart they're using. Exactly. Because we did have, um, depending on what chart you're looking at, we had a computer error which shifted some cells. One particular cell. Yeah, so... You know, I think our website has the current corrected chart, so you may want to reference that. But um, I've always found Archer's Advantage to be pretty good, but it is at the mercy of your inputs, as w- as is our spine chart. Sure. So ours is based off of the knock groove to the cut on the front, whereas Archer's Advantage's arrow length is based off of cut to cut, so end of carbon to end of carbon or aluminum to aluminum. So they do it a little bit differently. They factor in some different things. so And don't forget that uh, Archer's Advantage is most accurate when giving it an accurate chronograph reading. Yeah. I, I've never used the chronograph feature, but I, I wouldn't doubt that either. Yeah. So, I mean, it's designed around that. Uh, Perry did a lot of work to make that thing accurate. But, you know, Steve's point is super important to remember, and that is um, you know, basically just like computer programming, garbage in, garbage out. You've got right. to give it good data. If you don't, uh, it may drive you batty. One of the other things is, quite frankly, I keep hearing people say the chart does this or that, and it's about half the people that say it does this and about half the people that say it does that, meaning 
half the people I run into say, your chart says it should be stiffer when it should be weaker, and the other half, vice versa. Yeah. And and every single case that I've investigated personally, it was a mismeasured variable. Right. People guessing at bow weight is the biggest offender. Mm-hmm. So that's, uh, I don't know if that helps with this particular question, but generally speaking, uh, that's why you're seeing discrepancies with some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Mary Judnick, Marty, excuse me, Marty Judnick, uh, any disadvantage to a fallaway arrow rest for an indoor compound target bow? Love to hear Steve's thoughts. No offense, George. I just don't have any recurve questions. Um, no, fallaway rest will work fine. You know, the you are at the mercy of them being a bit more mechanical. The, all all rests will have their their weak spots, right? Fallaway is mechanical cord can get you know severed or whatever there's there's a number of different things that can happen to a fall away rest a blade rest the blade can bend or break so you kind of got to pick your poison whatever you're most comfortable with and whatever you think is most reliable but in terms of fall away rest some of the new ones like the aae pro drop and the uh hamski the limb driven rest i think they're they're all pretty well built and they would work just fine you know the uh, typical um sewing circle of archers that like to talk about archers mentioned very, very quickly that uh, Brady's uh, four-fletch at Gator Cup, uh, you know, was an oddity. And Matt Zolman's asking about it. He says that the four-fletch has to be deciphered before the whole country frantically starts to refletch. <laughs> Maybe a marketing oh, tactic man. to sell more spider veins? Yeah. And then Kim Birch says, I'm sure all the hardcore fanboys have already finished Refletching. Yeah. You know, here's my experience. Brady likes to play around and test stuff. I personally asked him why. He's like, I don't know. I haven't been shooting great, so I thought I would try it. That's it. Didn't hurt. That's it. Didn't hurt. Right. But I don't think Brady's out there going, you know how I could sell 33% more spider He just doesn't think that way. No. It doesn't Brady wants to shoot good. He wants to tried a different thing. I mean, he was shooting 90 grain points recently. I don't think everybody changed to 90 grain points. Well, that's not as visible as a four fletch. <laughs> right. So it's uh, it's kind of whatever. You and know. are we still shooting 90 grain points? I have no idea. Us fanboys, I mean, we got to know. He might have yesterday, and he might be shooting something else different today. In fact, well, I that's a, the point. I got a text from him not too long ago, and I've got to go address that after this. So I think he's making some changes yet again. I'm simply going to say this. If you're going to try to follow what a guy like Brady Ellison does, you better follow the whole package. <laughs> Start with uh, mental approach and uh-huh. uh, your shot technique first. Then yeah. equipment can come far, far, far down the road. Like, yeah, exactly. And, and you know, I mean, really? You're going to worry about somebody shooting four-fletch? Okay. I'll tell you this. If I see the Korean team, and I don't mean a specific Korean, the Korean team shooting four-fletch next year – I'll start paying attention. Yeah, yeah. Chris Thomas, what's the best way to get an extra? Uh, by the way, they shoot uh, they shoot X tens and hundred grain points over there in Korea, and uh, they don't seem to have changed a whole lot of stuff. Classic spin wings, you know. Yeah, that too. Although you know, Brady's 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 veins work great. They they hold up good mm-hmm. and all that. But yeah, they shoot spin wings, and some of them even use out knocks, east and out knocks on their X tens. So. You know, old school. Most people, probably don't, they're probably having to Google what that is. Yeah, I know. Chris Thomas, what's the best way to get an extra half inch of draw length out of a Hoyt Prevail with the X3 cam without having to get different cams? He's on a number two, doesn't want to be on the bottom of a number three. Yeah, you could 
put a few twists in the cables, take a few out of the string, and well, he wants extra. He wants more. Yeah, a few okay. into the cables and a few. Ah, out I of got the string. you. Sorry, yep. sorry, sorry. Get you there. There you go. I, don't, I wouldn't go too heavy. I mean, I, the last thing I like to do is preload. Preload is a popular term that's thrown out by a lot of guys who yes. don't know much. Um, load the limbs up too far, and run the risk of uh, overloading them. So, you know. I'll I'll just uh, segue here for a second. There was a a lot of guys saying that if you preloaded the Hoyt limb, meaning reduce the axle to axle length by shortening the cables and the string, that the bow would be faster. And maybe some guys were getting a, a little bit more performance, but I promise that Hoyt knows the absolute load limit of their limbs and doesn't go beyond that. And if you want to go beyond that, you run the risk of uh, – damaging the limbs this is true of any manufacturer not right. just white yeah you know a, a lot of these companies now have similar limbs uh, you know PSC's had these limbs for a long time this this very heavily curved mm -hmm. kind of situation um some of the newer hoyts not some of the target models so much but some of the higher performance bows yeah um you know these these guys they didn't go to engineering school for the for the coffee okay i mean yeah. you know there's a lot put into it but yeah for chris i mean a few twists into the string, the, the cables, a few out, you'd be able to get that half inch and, and it won't, won't affect anything. Jonathan Ingram recently, it's felt like I'm using my lats instead of my rhomboids to pull through the shot with my compound. I've also noticed a friend doing this with their recurve. Any advice for correcting this? I right. think I'd have to see what it is. And, and Jonathan, I'll say this, you know, I'm not, I'm not a biomechanical expert per se. But I will tell you, sometimes what you feel or what you think you feel is not what's actually happening. So, you know. Especially, I mean, if he's been training for a period of time, pretty soon, I would say the lats and the rhomboids all feel like one big bad tangle of muscle knot. And you feel stuff within one. I'm but here shaking my head affirmatively, yeah, yes. I mean, it's, uh, you know, when I'm trying to activate the back, I'm thinking more about where my elbow is going. Yeah. You know, and uh, trying to wrap that around my head a little bit figuratively. But at the same time, I'm sitting here doing this with my elbow and, and trying to get that feeling. And as I feel my rhomboids activate, guess what my lats do too? Well, it's all connected. Yeah. And it's all after a while. If you train in archery long enough, pretty soon it's connected badly. Yeah. It's all one big yeah. nasty bundle of, 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 in my case, crunchy muscle tissue. Yeah, the the physio for the U.S. team, you know, last week in China, she she mentioned like you guys are all really jacked up back there. I mean, oh yeah, your left side is is fairly normal, and your right side is massively, uh, how would I say this, overdeveloped. <laughs> yes, and that's true of many archers. Yeah, so yeah, most you know, everybody. Yeah, not Jonathan, I I don't have advice for correcting it because I don't know if it's broken. Okay, but like my old standby. Anytime anybody asks something like this that we can only imagine and not see, uh, see if you can get a coach to look at what you're doing mm -hmm. and um, maybe see if you've got yourself a condition where you are maybe overdeveloping a little bit, get yourself a massage. I would, yeah. In my, in my head, if you're feeling it in the lats, you're probably fine. If you're feeling it in the bicep, that's where you got problems. That was exactly what I was about to say. If you start to feel it in your biceps, then I'd start to worry a little bit. The rest of it, it's all connected. I know the biceps are connected too, but you know what I'm trying to get at. All right, Roland Deason. Can Steve explain how to get a surprise shot 
when the point is also to get your release to go off with the same timing. You missed a question above his. I'll get to it. <laughs> um, Roland, so um, my my theory on this is when I get to full draw, right, if I'm if I'm trying – there's different shot approaches I'll take depending on, on what I'm feeling that particular day. But for the most part, the surprise and the release timing – is triggered by the aim and the subconscious. So usually, usually I don't release the arrow when, you know, it's uh, way off target. I mean, I'll have some shots that'll, you know, break badly, but generally they're breaking in or around the 10. Um, and, and the shots that don't land in the 10 are usually on their way out of the 10 as I fire or something like that. So um, when, when your mind sees through your eyes, what it's looking for, generally you're able to subconsciously finish the shot. And because it's subconscious there, that's where you get the surprise. So I would, I would say that's, that's uh, my answer to your question. I like it. It's a good, good answer. Seth Niebaum, has Steve installed a podium in his house since he's spending so much time on one during the tournament season? No, I have not only because I haven't spent much time in my house. Nine podiums in a row now. Um, Mm-hmm. Well, I don't count. I'm not counting World Cup. You're not? No. Nah. Because it was a team podium? Yeah, individual. Yeah, yeah. It's still a podium. Not counting it. Nine podiums in a row. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, you can take it, but I, I stuck at seven. That's how I look at it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Fine. Gator Cup <laughs> uh, at the Easton Newberry Center. Uh, that went pretty smoothly, I gather. Yeah. I mean, I didn't Weather wasn't necessarily so hot, make huh? the podium there. I saw a couple there. of pictures that weren't so great. I made the podium at a tournament, at the tournament, but uh-huh. not for the Gator Cup. Not the podium. Yes. A yeah, podium. So. I understand your distinction there. Uh, weather was, the wind was absolutely brutal. It was, um, yeah, it was just awful. The first day was a little shootable. I shot a 701, and I felt like it was a great yeah, accomplishment. Solid score. Yeah, it was a great accomplishment. There's a lot of really good shooters who were in the 680s. Brady and his four-fletch one. Yeah, so... Second day elimination match, it was horrible. I mean, it was absolutely horrible. I actually pulled out a button and punched it twice just because Whoa. the clock was a factor. Holding on target was a factor. So I didn't I didn't want to have a hinge out and, you know, have it have the wind blow me off the target and set the release off. So Yeah. It it was that bad at times. So yeah, I, I ended up tied with a one thirty two. Wow. And and lost my shoot. First, that's, that's first like, shoot off arrow, I shoot a 10. Oh. And the other guy matches it. We had to shoot again. Oh. So it was just disastrous. 132 is like uh, Antalya Beach scores. It's worse than that. I I mean, I've shot on the Antalya Beach when it's windy, and I'll take that any day over what we were dealing with. Wow. So, and it, that says it a lot. It didn't feel that bad. I think because there's no trees in the area, so you don't hear any wind. So it's just big open field, right? And Everything comes across. You're you're literally a mile from the from the trees, so it just gets to whipping through there. It feels like about a five to ten mile an hour wind, and then you you know you break a shot in the middle, and it's uh, eight nine line right. So you start holding left, and basically all weekend I held left, which is always a cause for concern because that's how you uh, that's how you can induce some anticipation into your shot. So. You spend all weekend holding left side, and then you go home and you get good conditions, and you try to hold in the middle, and you just can't do it. 
but I uh, decided to to break that. I just won't shoot for a couple days. Hope I forget, go in. But one, the other advantage is you're going straight to a field tournament from here. Yeah, so it should be a little nicer. But well, I not will just say, nicer, but different, right? I mean, right? Yeah, different game entirely. Yeah. On a positive note, the only about the only arrow that I felt like, hey, I should hold this one right in the middle. That's where I should try to aim to get it to land there was my very last arrow of team trials. And sure enough, I was able to hold it in the middle without panic. And I, I executed a really good shot. It went in the middle. I packed up my bow and went home. <laughs> that sounds like a challenge. I, I love shooting in the wind because it's a great equalizer for me. Yeah, that's what I'm With yeah. recurve. Yeah, I'd rather, I'd rather shoot in the dead calm. And there's enough really good I shooters get that. now. That, I totally get that. Yeah. But you know, I embraced the wind when I was shooting at a reasonably high level because so many other people didn't. Right. And so for me, it was an advantage, you know, having mm-hmm. a positive attitude about yeah. it. Yeah. Because, yeah, okay, I know I'm going to throw some out there in the tomatoes territory, but yep. but so is everybody else. Yeah, it, it can kind of, if you can approach it that way and, and uh, lower your expectations for your score and your ability to aim and focus solely on execution – you can do well in the wind and you can take advantage of it. So that was kind of my thought process. And then, like I said, when it was done, I tried to just wad it all up and throw it away. I'm, I'm going to go shoot tonight and hope I can remember how to do so. Looking ahead to Turkey. Um, well, before that, let's just talk briefly about where you're headed next, which is Darrington, uh, USA Field Nationals. Yeah. And then you've got a quick turnaround. You've got to head to Seattle and then fly to Turkey. Yep, so I'm heading to Seattle Thursday. It's currently Wednesday. I have not set up anything yet for field, so I'll go do that a little bit tonight. You might shoot six arrows tonight? I'll shoot more than six. Twelve? Well, I'll actually spend a lot of time just drawing back and looking at the target and Uh looking down. Okay. And then (laughs) listening to other people shoot, you know, sound judging. I see. Yeah. (laughs) So. I know. Nobody does that. Yeah. All right. Uh but yeah, go straight from from Darrington on Monday morning to Turkey, landing Tuesday night in Turkey, qualifying Wednesday morning. So I sent a bow with Braden. Braden's got one of my bows. I've got one of his. Always a great idea. Yeah. So if we have an issue, I don't know why more teams there. don't do that. Yeah, uh, they. Yeah, I would think they would or should. You know, if you're meeting at the airport, it's a no brainer to me. But at the same time, a lot of teams can probably share equipment. I can't. You know, not at your draw length. No. And the only guy I think I could share with. Uh, Jean-Philippe Bouche from France. He's left-handed. So, Well, there you go. Yeah, kind of screwed. Looking ahead at what's going to happen in Turkey, Korea's not going. Uh, Korea will not Wild be there. Baby. And so... Uh, Somebody's going to win. Well, <laughs> yeah. My, um, my prediction, Japan will take a women's recurve gold medal. That's my prediction for Antalya. Hmm. Looking at the... Um, Looking at the men's recurve situation, a lot of heavy hitters will be there. I could see Mauro Nespoli doing well there. Yes, indeed. He's on a roll. Mauro is, uh, what size X10 is he using right now? 325. Oof. With stainless points to stiffen it up. Woof. The man's a, he's just an animal. What's That's, interesting is I see people talking about the draw weight, you know, 60, and they're saying, well, he may go to even more. I'm like, no, he won't. He can't. There's a rule. And they'll check him. And nobody is going to make limbs that heavy. <laughs> right. Well, anyway, that's that's interesting. Um, 
That, I see Brazil will be there. Is yeah, there? Uh, and and it's nice to see that Marcus is still in there and shooting, and and Daniel, and um, so that'll be that'll be good. Um, the French will be sending a full group. Of course, a lot of your Eastern European countries will be there, like Georgia, um, and. Uh, uh, Kazakhstan will be there, which is more Middle Eastern, and uh, they, they got know. the big W in Shanghai. As yes, the they team. did, and that was a bit of a shocker. No Not doubt. a bit. There was a hundred percent complete shocker. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? It wasn't a shocker to me, believe it or not, and it, not because of who they beat, because I've seen them come so close so many times, and I know that they've got uh, really good potential to uh, to do well at an event like that. So. Uh, looking at the compound men that are headed to Turkey, U.S. is sending a full complement, of course. It's you and who else is going? Braden, Rio, and Bridger Deaton. Gotcha. So you got a four-man contingent. Yep. France is sending its heavy hitters, including Jean-Philippe Bulch and uh, Dominique Genet and P.J. Deloche. And um, just looking around here, we've got uh, a number of other really good shooters. Esmail Abadi from Iran. Uh, Abhishek Virma. From India, who I once saw shoot more than 50 consecutive 10s at 50 meters in, uh, in Bangkok a few years ago. So he's, he's a talent. Um, Sergio Pagni, our buddy from Italy, will be there. The yeah, Sultan. they'll have a team this time. He, yep, he was team. in Italy by himself. Seppi. Seppi's uh, back on the circuit, huh? Yes, Seppi was in Shanghai as well. Seppi Siliers from South Africa, our good friend. The man with maybe the best name in archery, Viktor Kalashnikov from Russia, AK-47. I said name. All right. So, uh, and Alexander Denbaev, and um, we've got a uh, number of other good shooters. There's Elmo from Turkey. He'll be there. And so uh, that should be an interesting event for the men's compound contingent. Now, Korea's women in compound have just come off a big W, but we will not be seeing them in Turkey. So the compound women are going to have uh, a number of Top shooters, of course, Sarah Lopez, undefeated for two years now, which is just amazing. Uh, Sarah Sonicson, Tanya Jensen, who did really great at the uh, World Cup Indoor in Vegas this year. Andrea Marcos, equally uh, the silver medalist of that event. Um, hey, look who's back, Pascal Lebec. That'll, that'll be nice to see her shooting again. And Christina Hagenhauser, the past world champion. Um, we've got a number of other great shooters, including... Uh, Miss Venom from India, who's shot great at the Asian Grand Prix events. Irene Francini from Italy, Anastasia Anastasio. Just uh, a girl on that list from Italy with one name. I want one name, just one. Yeah, yeah. Who's that? Uh, Parvina. Oh, from India. Uh, so yeah, not Italy. Sorry. Yes, Miss Parvina. Yeah, she's like Madonna, except she's Parvina. And uh, <laughs> uh, Natalia Abdieva from Russia, uh, certainly. Um, no slouch there. Toya Ellison, Brady's wife, will be there. Uh, is Linda going? No. No. Yasim Bostan, the past world junior champion, she's uh, she's going to be there. Gizem Emagakli, who's, uh, I think, the sister of Elmo. Yeah. Shooting pretty good. Yeah. And uh, then we've got a, a more or less fresh team from the United States. Uh, some of these ladies are not the mainline circuit um, for the U.S. team, um, whenever we've uh, been, you know, looking at a World Cup situation, but certainly we've seen Lexi Keller. And um, tell us about these other ladies. Um, so Dahlia Crook has had some success, yeah. at the World Cups, but she didn't make the team this year. So 
uh, with Turkey having a little shakeup and and uh, in in our team, she was I think fifth or sixth in the rankings, and she'll she'll be there. Is this a partial function of what happened with World Trials, or is this just a? Uh, no, this is so Turkey was not funded for us this oh. year, so we're all self funded. You're basically. on your own yeah. for Turkey. So she's going. Danielle's been on the team, and Cassidy Cox has been on the team, but I think the oldest one there is either Lexi or Danielle at like twenty one. So this is a very young and uh, very much learning mode situation, perhaps for these uh, for these ladies. Yep. Um, looking at the recurve ladies, Anna Maria Rendon from Colombia will be there, and um, so will. Let's see here. Just looking down the list, uh, Brioni Pittman will be there from GBR. GBR is is kind of hurting these days. You know they've got a big funding problem, and uh, I don't know how that's working out. Uh, we are sort of the beneficiaries of some of their problem, as we're going to be seeing uh, Sanji here in the next few months, uh, having left GBR. Uh, Katuna Nadarmanitsi of Georgia will be there. Um, You know, always a high-level competitor. So is Christine Esabua of Georgia. And then we've got, uh, there's another uh, shooter from India with one name. Yes. Miss Priti. And Deepika Kumari, uh, the past cadet world champion, she'll be there. Gwendolina Sartori from Italy. Um, and then here's here's an interesting thing. Japan is sending its current A-team to this event, which contains two top-ranked shooters and then two shooters who have only come on the international stage in the last year because a couple of other more experienced shooters, including two of three of their Olympic team from, from Rio, are on the B-team. Hmm. And they're so coming here little- to Salt Lake. Little re-ranking. Yeah, the- so Kaori Kawanaka, who shot in Rio, um, is the only Olympic team member um, who is going to the event. And then you've got Hayakawa Ren from Japan, whose sister Nami won the World Indoor Championship in 2007. So Ren um, and Kaori are going to team up with either Miss Sugimoto or Miss Nakamura, uh, who are less experienced but also top-level shooters. That is why I'm predicting the potential for a gold medal for Japan. And then we've got Ida Roman from Mexico, uh, who's there on her own, as far as I can tell. And uh, Natalia Ardanieva, Russia's got a full contingent, um, coming off their win against the United States uh, at, at Shanghai. Tanya Ting, never to be trifled with from Chinese Taipei. She's a great shooter. Uh, Ukraine sending its first, uh, first run team. And then we've got a number of shooters. And again, this is, I guess, a function of the self-funding thing. Shooters from the United States, quite frankly, none of whom I know. <laughs> so I, I know two of the four. Okay. Kind well, of. you're getting to more of the domestic tournaments than I am. Yeah. So. But the, the other two I've never seen in my life. Okay. Well, it's a great opportunity. They get to go and represent the United States at an international event. That's awesome. Yeah, it's cool. So, uh, and so with this, uh, this will be our last podcast for a little while. We're going to try to get you on uh, – on the phone or Skype from Turkey toward the end there, if that's okay with you, Steve, and yeah. see if we can get another one out. And then we've got Salt Lake. Boy, are we looking forward to having everybody here for that event. Um, that's just going to be awesome. Should be a good time. I think so. And I'll, I'll be happy just to be home. Yeah, and shooting. And staying in your own bed and shooting, that's unusual. Yep. And then you've got the opportunity, of course, to uh, – See uh, if you're here in Salt Lake City or if you're in the region or you want to fly in for the day or for the weekend. Uh, we're going to have a great uh, finals event. Tickets will be very affordable. We talked to Greg Easton. I, don't, I know you don't ever listen to the podcast, but we had Greg on the 
podcast last time, and it's going to have very affordable tickets for basically what's going to be an archery festival. So people will be able to shoot, and they'll be able to try stuff out, and there will be an opportunity to meet your archery idols here in Salt Lake City, all starting on the 17th of June, culminating with the finals on the 24th and the 25th of June at the Easton Archery Center in Salt Lake City, about 10 minutes away from the Salt Lake Airport. Very close. So that should be great. Yeah, it'll be a fun time. I'll be happy to have it behind me. Not a bad time of year. <laughs> Not a bad time of year here in Salt Lake City for that either. You know, highs in the uh, low 80s. Humidity here is pretty low. Nighttime is going to be, you know, high 60s, lower 70s. It should be really good weather. More importantly, I won't have to travel anywhere from the day I get back from Turkey until July 11th. Well, that's that's the longest break you've had in a while. Yes. So, um, and also more importantly, all the guys from the U.S. team are going to be bringing their golf clubs. So okay. we're going to get – they're all going to come in early, you know, say – say Friday or Saturday before. We'll get a couple rounds in that weekend, also uh-huh. shoot some some bows and whatnot, sure. and we'll be ready to rock. And uh, then when it's all said and done, we'll have some more golf. Where are you headed, to, where are you headed for golf? Uh, maybe Mountain Dell might run up the canyon. I like Mountain Dell. Yeah. Uh, you know, if you ever hear a motorcycle screaming by as you're about to tee off, it's probably, it's probably me. probably you, yeah. Yeah. There's also, uh, there's also one right here, not too far from the office, Stone Bridge. Mm-hmm. Good course. So, so plenty of places to play around Salt Lake City. If you're coming out for the World Cup, bring your clubs. Yeah, and uh, let me know. Let me know you're bringing them. I'll get dollar uh, point. Well, I'll get I'll get like a you know some type of a group outing together. The more I the more we have, the more fun it will be. All right, sounds like a plan. So if you're planning to uh, come to Salt Lake City for the World Cup, bring your clubs. Steve will host some yes. kind of outing. Yes, or maybe more than one outing. There might be Maybe. multiple golf outings yeah. for all we know, right? What we do know is there will be no putting on the field at the Eastern Archery Center. <laughs> well. Hey, I ever tell you about my friend Stan Sajkowski? No. Stan's a guy from Canada, and he was on the uh, he was on the Canadian Olympic team in 1980, so he didn't get to go. And Stan also was on the – he shot in the world championships. And, you know, he's a he's kind of a, you know, salty guy and – he used to bring his golf clubs out to the Archers of Caledon in Toronto, where I used to practice quite frequently, and he'd shoot chip shots in between ends. You know, had a lot of fun that way. Two sports in one. Yeah, I think you should maybe think about a way for you to work your love for golf into your love for archery more than you have by simply taking your clubs around the world. Well, we uh, I mean, like an actual event. We were at World Cup in Poland a couple of years ago, and. Just to see, you know, we had a little competition, a little friendly competition amongst the Americans. Bridger Deaton had a 58-degree wedge and, you know, 70-meter targets. We wanted to see who could get closest. I landed one on top of the target, took a perfect divot right out of the shooting line. Um, We all got in trouble for that, you know, but we had a lot of fun. So we won't be bringing golf clubs to the venue because we were were told we were um, shameful, I believe. At Poland. Yes. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. So we won't shame anyone. Was this an American coach that told you this? No. Okay, we won't go there. But I will point out that I think it would make a great thing for our video crew, for you and your friends, to take some chip shots at some targets. And I'll bet we can make an arrangement. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I'm sure we can make that happen. I bet we can make that happen. I'd pay to see that. Yeah. Just for fun. All right. Well, Steve, you got packing to do. You got you got to pack for two tournaments in one. Yep. 
got into work pretty early too still a little jet lag so i'm gonna leave i know i was shocked to see you here before me i get here at 7 30 in the morning here and here you everybody. were yeah. i was impressed yep because you usually roll in around 10 <laughs> i wish all nice. right all right that's easton podcast depends 51. on if i'm jet lagged the other way okay fair enough yeah i know that whole deal waking up at 3 30 in the morning and being bored after you've made breakfast <laughs> nothing like coming in at 5 30 in the morning it's amazing how much you can get done but then around 4 30 in the afternoon you start to slack off a little bit it's difficult. All right. I think we put everybody to sleep by now. More than likely. Is it time? It's time. End of show? End of the show.